This week's chapters is Psalm 42 through Psalm 46. Hope you guys have been reading along with us as we go through the Bible. Five chapters every week. So Psalm chapter 42. My goal tonight is to cover briefly all five chapters and then to dwell in chapter 42 for a minute. Um looking at depression and the saints fight for hope depression and the saints fight for hope so um, that's where we're going tonight let's pray father it is my prayer that tonight your joy and your hope would come and indwell every believer here That you would gift us with faith to receive everything that you want us to be. Lord, that hope and joy would come to us through your son and our union in him. And that God, as we go through these psalms, that you would teach us to think and to feel with you. That in our highest and lowest points... Faith would carry us through all. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So that's one of the wonders of the Psalms is that they literally encompass every conceivable emotion of humanity. As Martin Luther, in one of his more lengthy quotes that I'm going to summarize, says, essentially that the Psalms open a window into the blessings of heaven and within a page turn, opens a window into the judgment of God and a glimpse of hell. So you have the the glimpses of heaven, the glimpses of hell. You have the peaks of joy and the valleys of depression. And everything in between, it's in the Psalms. It has been said that God gave Israel the five books of law, his word to them. And in the Psalms, we have the five books of Israel, their words to him. So between the law and the Psalms, we have a five-book communication between God and his people, the way it should always be with us. So I want to review something that I taught when we did Psalms chapters 1 through 5. I want to review what the Psalter itself is essentially, how it's constructed and the message it wants to tell. And then we'll go over our five chapters tonight, and then we'll go back to looking at depression and the saints' fight for hope. So as you guys know, the book of Psalms has been broken up into five books. And we are entering tonight into book number two. Why five books? The five books were intentionally created in order to mirror the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible known as the law that God gave to Israel. Why would Israel want to parallel the Psalms with the Pentateuch? Because in the Jew mind, you can't worship without obedience to God's law. Worship isn't just some sentimental feeling of higher admiration towards God. Worship must walk in obedience or it is not worship. It's just that sentimentality. And so we see that when the whole Psalter opens in chapter 1, it praises 
the law of God and says that whoever adheres to the law of God and delights and meditates upon it day and night becomes like a tree planted by rivers of water and it, it bears fruit in its proper season. And so the whole book of Psalms opens up by saying God's law is the core and the center of worship. So the Jews, when they finally finished compiling the entire Psalter towards the exile era, somewhere in that time frame, they broke it off into five different books. So the five books are, yes, to parallel the law of God, but also they broke them off into five books to tell a story through the Psalms. The story of the Psalms can be read through looking at the titles of the Psalms. For example, since you're at Psalm 42, I'll show you what I mean by the titles. The title of this Psalm 42 says, To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. That's a title. Those are littered throughout the Psalms in front of each one. And these titles, scholars believe, tell a story that those who edited the Psalms wanted to communicate to us. Now, I want you to think here. The five books were organized during the exile. Why is that significant? Well, if you were a Jew and you were living in a land that God promised you, you had a heritage of God's never-ending love and commitment towards your people, and you held the law of God, the only nation privileged to do that. You had the temple of God. Surely we're the favored ones on the earth, right? And then you go into exile. God cuts you off from those promises and sends you into exile. There's a lot of questions going on about what is God up to? What is God's purpose and plan for us? So though the Israelites had the psalms in existence before exile they compiled and edited them in exile to encourage the cast off and exiled people that they can still trust in god and put their hope in him that though they're exiled he's faithful to his promises and will call them back to restoration yes that is all in the psalms so what i want to do is remind you guys of what these titles to these stories, or the, what the titles, what story these titles tell. So, book, ch- book number one starts at Psalm 1. And goes all the way to Psalm 41. Book number one is the story about David's rise to power through struggle. Alright, what the story the Psalms tell is the story of David to exile, to the new David, yet to come. And it starts off in book one with King David's rise to power through struggle. And we know of David's rise to power through struggle. He, he went through all kinds of persecution under Saul. And then he, he was finally able to take the throne. So we see that in the book, the first book, David is in the title of every single psalm except for the first two, which serve as an introduction, so those don't really count, and except for two other psalms, which simply don't have a title at all. That would be 10 and 33. 
So David is all over book one because it is his rise to power through struggle. Just like the Israelites rose to their power through great struggle. Slavery in Egypt, wandering through the wilderness, and the conquest of Canaan. Lots and lots of struggle. Then book two, which we open tonight, is the titles tell the story of David's reign all the way through Solomon's reign. So the pinnacle of Israel's glory. And in book two, we see that the titles give credit to, yes, David, also a guy named Asaph, the sons of Korah and Solomon. Those are the authors attributed to in the titles of book two. Now, what's significant about all those names is that all of those names were involved in David's reign. Asaph was one of the singer. It was a singer and a musician in the temple. And the sons of Korah were a collection of priests, singers, and gatekeepers in the temple. They all served in David's reign. And book two ends in chapter 72. And in 72, we find something interesting because it says that it is a psalm of Solomon. That's what the title says, of Solomon. So what you have in Psalm in the second book is you have David's reign. And at the very end of book two, a psalm of Solomon. Because that's what happens is at the end of David's life, he passes the throne on to his son Solomon. And so Solomon is now ruling. Well, in book three, which starts in 73... We now come to the dark part of the Psalms. Book three can be entitled Morning Exile. Because as soon as Solomon's reign ended, Israel began its downward spiral into exile. As soon as Solomon passed off the scene, his son and a rival divided the kingdom And the northern kingdom went quickly into idolatry and fell to the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, Judah and Jerusalem, slowly went into idolatry and eventually fell to the Babylonians where the exile happened. So as soon as Solomon's off the scene, exile begins to happen. And we see the exile beginning to happen in book three. Um, In book three, David's name is mentioned one time in the titles. One time. And that shows the dismal feeling of the third book and of the exile. And then you get to Psalm 89, which is the last chapter of book three. And Psalm 89 is a huge lament that basically asks God, what have you done To the throne of Israel. You said that David would never lack a son to sit on the throne. What have you done? Because in the exile, Israel doesn't have a king. The Davidic son is no longer on the throne. And so Psalm 89 questions God's covenant. And then book four opens up. Psalm 90. It's a prayer of Moses. Why does book four open with Moses? Because the message of book four is that the exile will end because God, not a man of Israel, God is on the throne. The exile will end. So 
Book 4 opens with chapter 90, a psalm of Moses, to say that as Israel under Moses did not live forever in the wilderness, their present experience in the wilderness of Babylon will not live forever. From Egypt, they got to Canaan. And now from Babylon, they will get back to Canaan. It's a, it's a, it's a little glimmer of restoration is going to happen. So that's why it starts with Moses in chapter 90. And then you get this entourage of Psalms, 93, 95 through 99, that begin to praise Yahweh as the king of the world. So the hope is to Israel... Yes, you don't have anybody on the throne this second. But you have the hope of Yahweh, God of the universe, being the king of the world. And he can bring restoration at his precise timing. In book four, you now find two mentions of David. That's one more than the previous book. That's that's a little extra hope being sprinkled in. And then... Book 5 brings it all to a climax because book 5 affirms hope in not David, hope in a new David. It seems that the entire Psalter is obsessed with David. Often in the New Testament, you'll, you'll see the Psalms attributed to David. The Psalter is obsessed with David because David was the king whom God promised would forever rule over Israel. And so at the very beginning, we see a bunch of David, then David disappears during the dark times of the Psalms. But then in book five, David makes this massive comeback. And it's obviously not just the David who had died and once ruled over Israel. The Jews were looking forward to that son that God promised who would rule an eternal kingdom on an eternal throne at the son of David. So book five has a bunch of David in it. And it just talks about all of this Davidic hope. David appears 11 times. Many of them don't have titles at all. Um, Psalm 107 begins book 5. And David appears on the scene immediately after that in Psalm 108. It's David, 109, David, 110, David. And then if you go chapter by chapter through book 5... If you do this in detail, it's amazing the story that the titles tell concerning the new David. Um, Tonight, my purpose isn't to go into this. If you want to hear the details of book five, that amazing study is on the CD from chapters one through five of Psalms. So grab that CD if you weren't here for that. Um, It's got all the details about book five. It's amazing. Um, I think I will point out one of them, though. In um, 137, Psalm 137, I think this stuff is awesome. Psalm 137 is an exile psalm. And before I read it, do you guys remember Genesis 3.15? We call it the Proto-Evangelium, which in our language means the first gospel. Genesis 3.15, man was just exiled from God's presence, just like Israel was exiled from Canaan because of sin. And God right there, despite their exile from his presence in Eden, he promises 
that God is ultimately going to win, though it looks bleak for humanity. He says, Eve, you're going to have a son, an offspring, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. So in Psalm 137, we read this. Look at verse 8. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Really graphic psalm there. Many people can have a hard time thinking, how is this in the Bible where a psalmist, a man of God, is praying to God and saying, blessed is the person who takes the babies of Babylon and smashes their heads into the, their skulls into the concrete. How is that even godly? How is that even a prayer? That's sick. That's wrong. But to me, it's an answer of Genesis 3.15. That in Psalm 137, there's a prayer, Oh God, let the heads of my enemies be smashed. Let you have the final victory. Let the promise of 3.15 come true. Now, save us from our exile. Be victorious on our behalf, O God. And so there's that plea in Psalm 137. And it's almost begging for the answer. Who's going to do this for us? Who's going to deliver us from exile? Who's going to crush the head of the serpent? Well, guess what the title of the next psalm is? Psalm 138 says, of David. That's your answer. The new David will come and deliver humanity out of exile. Restore them to his presence and crush the head of the serpent. And it doesn't just stop there. Psalm 139, of David. Psalm 140, of David. Psalm 141, of David. 142, of David. 143, of David. 144, of David. 145, of David. They wanted to get the point across, right? (laughs) And then the last five books of the Psalter all exclaim hallelujah. Saying hallelujah at the beginning and end of each of those psalms. Because that's the point. The head of the serpent is going to be crushed by the new David. Hallelujah! End of Psalter. So that's the hope of the Psalter. It tells the story of David to the exile to the new David. That Israel can hope in the midst of their exile that God is with them. And that God has a purpose to be faithful to his promises to them. So, now that we've got that in context, here we are in Psalm 42. We're beginning book number two. Now, Psalm 42 and 43 are believed to originally have been one psalm. It's clear for a couple of reasons. There's a couple of parallel lines here. Um, If you look at 42 verse 5 and 11, they're the same verse. And then 43 verse 5 is the same verse. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise him again, my salvation and my God. They both are at the end of the Psalms. It's the refrain. We believe that they were one psalm. Um, Also, there's the questioning from the enemies, or the psalmist is asking in 43.2, Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? 
he asked the same question in Psalm 42. Why do I go about mourning? So why were the Psalms divided? Probably for liturgical reasons. Originally one Psalm that were split in some time by the Jews for liturgical reasons to make two different lament Psalms. Uh, let's go to Psalm 44. Now in Psalm 44, what we have is a praise of God's past works. Look at verse 1. O oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them, the Israelites, you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did, they, nor did their own arm save them, but their right hand and your right arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So because of God's delight in his chosen people Israel, they're praising him for the past that what you did is you drove out the nations before us and brought us into Canaan. And the language says in verse 2 that you planted them in the land of Canaan. Which I've been teaching the Tree of Life group that I believe God's planting Israel in Canaan was designed to create a new garden of Eden, so to speak. A, a, a new place where God dwelt with man and it was to be open to the nations to find restoration with God. That's what Eden was. It was the dwelling place of God in which man became a priest amongst God. But that was lost. And, and God's restoring that through Israel. And he planted them because Eden is referred to as a garden. And wherever you look um, through the, the temple, there's lots of talk about planting and foliage and plants and lushness being connected with God's presence. And so Israel being planted in the land of Canaan is referring to God's bringing them into an Eden-like state. Just how Psalm chapter 1 opens up with the one who obeys and meditates upon God's law will be planted like a tree by streams of water. You find that restoration with God under obedience to him. And Israel was planted in the land to become a light for the nations to be restored to God. Hmm. Of course, they don't do that, do they? They build a temple under Solomon, which was supposed to be a temple for all nations. If you look at 1 Kings 6... Solomon's own prayer for the temple says, God, let this be a place for all nations to come and pray to you. All nations. See, the temple was not supposed to be a nationalistic icon of pride for the Jews, which it became. It was supposed to be a place for the nations to find restoration under the God they've been exiled from. So Solomon has a mission, and he wants his mission. He says, here's the temple. God, let the nations come to it. But something happens to Solomon. The nations come into the country, 
many of them, but they come in the form of wives for Solomon, many foreign women. And one would think that understanding his mission as king of Israel, the nation to restore the nations, Solomon would lead these wives from the nations to the temple. You're now part of the nation. You're part of my household. Come to the temple. Find restoration with God. But does Solomon do that? To the contrary, to his very first wife, the daughter of Egypt, it says that he builds her her own temple. So that she can worship her Egyptian gods in the land of Canaan. Completely fail the restoration calling. And that's what Psalm 45, we believe, is somewhat about. It's a, um, well, the title calls it a love song. It's a love song between the king and his wife. And it's written by a, a temple um, I'm sorry, a palace poet. That's what verse 1 says. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verse to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. He's basically boasting that he has lots of lofty things to write and say because the king's so majestic. <laughs> I am, I'm just a great poet and I have lots to say to the king. And so it goes on to describe the, maj- the majesty of the king and then it talks about the beauty of the queen and this is their marriage. Look at verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. It's talking to the king. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Uh, verse 4. And your majesty write out victoriously for the cause of truth. Verse 5. It's the picture of him in battle. because This is, this is to find a man in these times. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. Isn't that romantic? Then in verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Huh? That's talking about the the, the king here. It is. Because the Jews believed that the king was in God's seat. They often called him the son of God. Yahweh is the one who gave the kingship to them. And so he who was on the throne was the appointed king by Yahweh over the nation theoretically to carry out Yahweh's mission to the nations. So the king would often be considered to be in God's seat. Of course, many kings did not carry out God's mission. So that's why it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This this poet is buttering up to the king. It goes on, The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from ivory palaces. Stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. There's lots of just, you're you're just beautiful. Now it talks to the bride, verse 10. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. If you do, the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. From these verses, scholars believe that this this bride 
is a princess from a foreign country. And the popular view is that this bride is an Egyptian princess and that this is celebrating Solomon's marriage to her. So I find it appropriate that where Israel fails their commission to um, become restoration to the nations by being planted as an Eden in Canaan, the next psalm talks about Solomon's first marriage and how that was just a disaster. And then a thousand times later, it was no better. He did have that many women. Um, I had a lot of things a thousand times. Wow. It's like harsh. Well, it's true. Um, so she's a foreigner. Um, now, here's what's interesting is that in verse six down to verse eight, we just read it. This is actually quoted in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 1 as a messianic passage. What that means is that it is quoted by the author of Hebrews in defense that Jesus was the Messiah. The reason I think the author of Hebrews had the liberty to do that was that even the Hebrews themselves, the Jews, thought that Psalm 45 was messianic. They read this and thought, oh, this is describing someone that's going to come and lead our nation. Now, let me clarify that when this psalm was written, there's none, there's none of this thought about, oh, some future person is going to come. There's some great, like, Jesus has come. Like, there's none of those thoughts. This is merely a poet in the king's palace who is writing about his lovely wedding because he's hired to do so. That's why he butters up the king in so many places. It's his job. He's writing a marriage poem. Now, fast forward down the years as the Jews develop their Messiah theology, as they begin to realize, particularly in exile, when you need a Messiah, that's particularly where that theology began to grow. They began to realize, okay, so the Davidic throne is cut off. God promised that there will always be a son of David on the throne. That must mean that there's going to become a future ruler for us. Because our kingdom didn't last forever like we thought it would, so there's still a future forever kingdom. All these thoughts started to happen in the exile, and they realized, okay, so there is gonna become, there's gonna come a figure who's going to be, they called Messiah, which means anointed one, God's anointed person, appointed to lead the nation into restoration and out of exile. That's what they were hoping for. Now, it would make sense if you are developing these hopes, then that if you began to read passages in the Psalms and you saw language that described this person you're hoping for, to start calling these messianic passages. And that's merely what it means by Psalm 45 being a messianic passage. It means that the language in verse 6, 7, and 8 describes what the Jews were expecting to come as the Messiah. So it now becomes a messianic passage. So again, you understand what I'm saying? It wasn't written as some prophetic thing. It was simply written as a marriage poem. Later down the road, they said, this sounds a lot like what the Messiah should be. So they pulled this as a messianic text that helped organize their Messiah theology. So does it make sense? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Yes, God promised Israel that they would have an eternal throne with an eternal king. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Sounds like God's rule. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. 
Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. And goes on. So that's messianic. Now, now that Jesus has come and that the New Testament affirms clearly that we are the bride of Christ, this psalm has another level of depth for us application-wise in that this is very descriptive of who our Messiah is, not just would be or should be, but is and who we are to be to him. So when it begs that the bride in verse 10 says, forget your people and your father's house and the king will desire your beauty, that's a call to those who want to follow Christ. Cut it off. The past. Your father's house. The things that you were, quote, raised in. The things that you, by nature, are allured to. The things of our flesh, our nature. Leave those. Jesus said, if you do not hate father, daughter, mother, son, for my sake, you have no business following me. So leave those things behind for the sake of attaching yourself, just like in a marriage, attaching yourself to another. Those things are cut off, and that's the same thing that we have to do. But, of course, there's the promise, too, that in verse 16, In the place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So, there it talks about princes being made in all the earth and the nations praising God forever and ever, or the king praising him forever and ever. That's what happens when people leave everything that they once found joy and satisfaction in to place all of that satisfaction in Christ alone. When that happens, God is praised amongst the nations. When we can sacrifice to say that all of my sufficiency and all of my satisfaction is found in Christ because what he provides for me is greater than all the other satisfactions I can find elsewhere, that magnifies Christ among the nations. And so to be able to turn from everything, from anything, whatever it is that Christ does, whatever it is that robs our our satisfaction in Christ, To be able to turn from that and to go to him, just as you do when you're married, just turning from the the dependency on parents and going to your spouse. And that's what Christ says is, listen, you either follow me because I am your full satisfaction now, or you continue to find your satisfaction in many other places, which Christians in the Bible call idols. Um, and it's not like this is a bad deal because the psalmist himself, we're going to get to this in a minute in Psalm 42 and 43. The psalmist himself says in 43 verse 4, basically what he's doing is he's yearning to be with God. And in verse 4 of 43, he says, Then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my exceeding joy. (laughs) 
I can't find anything better than what God offers me in the way of satisfaction for my thirsty soul. So I'm yearning and mourning until I can get to him. And so that's our call is that we leave behind your fathers and forget your people in your father's house and let the king desire your beauty. Okay, so then Psalm 46. So God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Then it talks about how disaster can happen, but we're okay because God's our present help in trouble. Um, and it talks about, verse 8, come and behold the works of the Lord. He's going to, it basically says he's going to destroy the weapons of war. And then in verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So rather than flipping out over situations, the, the command is be still and know that he's God. If you know he's God, you can be still. Unless you have a small God who can't do anything about the world. But if you have the God of Yahweh, then you can be still. And your being still while the world is, while your world even is crumbling exalts him among the nations because you're doing verse 1. God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So God is our present help in trouble. That's our help right now. Um, We call that grace, that he, everything that God is for us is given to us in Jesus, and our faith receives that grace. And so whenever you guys are going through something, he's a present help right now. Right? We don't have to just fall back upon past things or hope it will come through. He's the present help right now if we put our faith in all that he is for us in Christ. Okay, now we'll go back to verse, or chapter 42, and we'll close with what I want to be the main application here. And that's looking at depression and the saints fight for hope. Because in Psalm 42, clearly our psalmist is depressed. Can a Christian be depressed? Hmm. So look at verse 3. He is crying. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. He's also downcast in verse 5. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? And also in verse 6, he says, my soul is downcast or is cast down within me. He is not at peace. The bottom, uh, the second line of verse 5 says, why are you in turmoil within me? He is overwhelmed and feels like he's drowning in verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and all your waves have gone over me. So that's like a feeling of being overwhelmed and like you're drowning. He feels neglected in verse 9. He says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? He's oppressed in the bottom part of verse 9. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? His faith is challenged in verse 10. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And so all these things combined show us that this guy is in despondency and depression. He's not at the place he wants to be. And I don't envy his position at all whatsoever. 
So it looks to me, particularly in verse 3, that this guy is depressed. Now, depression does not always translate to a desire to kill yourself. I know we usually think of depression, we usually think of suicide. True, depression does and can lead to suicide, but depression itself does not always lead to those thoughts. There are what's called normal depression and abnormal depression. Normal depression is a depression that you and I, average people, go through from time to time. Normal depression can be triggered simply with things like fatigue, stress, um, different, just like this lack of energy or lack of interest in life. That's normal depression where you just feel down for seasons. But it becomes abnormal when your depression is prolonged and nothing seems to help it. And abnormal depression can often lead to suicide, or at least thoughts and desires of suicide. It's also characterized by um, a loss of ability to enjoy simple pleasures, and rejoicing seems absolutely impossible to somebody who is abnormally depressed. So depression is quite normal to the human experience. All depression can to be defined as an absence of an absence of joy resulting from an absence of hope so it's it's this loss this lack of joy that results from a lack or loss of hope hope and joy for the christian especially are connected they go hand in hand for example, Romans 5.2 says that we rejoice, that's joy, in the hope of the glory of God. 12, 12, Romans 12.12 12 tells us to rejoice in hope. And Proverbs 10 verse 28, the hope of the righteous brings joy. So joy and hope in the Bible go together. When I have hope, I have joy. But when I lose hope and I'm no longer having that confident expectation of what God is and what he will do, and there's this sense of like, I don't even know what's out there for me or what's going to happen. It seems like it's all over. Then my joy consequently dies with it. So a loss of hope brings a loss of joy and a loss of joy is your depression. So depression is a loss of joy because of a loss of hope. Now, the degree of your hopelessness equals the severity of your depression. So often we might just waver in our hope and it translates to that normal depression. Or you can have this complete loss of hope and you're in severe depression. So Christians, like I said, are definitely not immune to this. It's normal. So when you get depressed... Don't begin to afflict yourself and increase your depression as a result. Oh, I'm the worst Christian ever. I'm depressed. And then you get more depressed. It's normal. Expect it. So many, many great saints in the past have struggled with it. You may struggle with it too. Just to name, uh, literally just a few. These are just names that are off the top of my head of Christians who have struggled with depression. In the Bible, you have Elijah, Job, Jonah, David, Jeremiah, 
than some of our um, old Christian friends. If David Brainerd, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, and yes, Jesus fits in that boat as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, my soul is weary even to the point of death. And I must confess, if this helps anyone, that I definitely go through my seasons of depression as well, where I just have this tremendous lack of interest in life and ministry. Just like everything doesn't matter anymore. And you just, literally you have to choose to get up and make and pretend that something matters just to keep going. It's normal for many people. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones, many of you are familiar with the name. He's a great famous preacher of this century. He was a doctor before he became a preacher. So he knows a thing or two about depression, and this is what he this is what he says, Dr. Bravo. There are certain people who are more prone to depression in a natural sense than others. Though we are converted and regenerated, our fundamental personality is not changed. The result is that the person who is more given to depression than the other person before conversion will still have to fight after conversion. So there's just natural tendencies, or some people are naturally prone to depression. And even after conversion, if that's you, you're still going to have that natural tendency to fight. So like most feelings, the feeling of depression is not sin. If we choose to fight for hope in the midst of it. But if we let depression rule us, and now you're under control of another. So since depression is normal, our goal is not to avoid depression, but rather it's how to fight for hope in depression. That's the goal I see here in Psalm 42. be completely dumb for me to say this is how to avoid it, because sometimes it's just going to happen. It's better that we learn how to fight for hope in the midst of it. So what's the cause of depression? Um, real quick, there's four areas I see. There's the physical causes. That would be illness, fatigue, and stress. Simple things like moving, getting a new job. Like just the, it can cause depression because it brings stress. An illness can bring depression, um, fatigue. Sometimes you simply need a good night's sleep, <laughs> and you will do a lot better. There's the mental causes, which there's such a thing as biological depression where you are just, you need medical assistance because you're biologically imbalanced with that Um, there's emotional causes such as bereavement someone dies and there's the spiritual causes which is more relatable for the christian where that's a dry season where there's the sense of god's felt presence is absent you just your drag is you don't you don't feel his presence anywhere near it's just kind of like okay i'm just going through the whatever i'm just i know i should Continue with my Bible reading, but I'm just not feeling anything right now. That has been termed spiritual depression. And since God's presence, Psalm 1611 says, God's presence fills my joy, then if I lack his felt presence, then I'm going to lack felt joy. I'm not going to feel very happy. And so the feeling of his absence is going to be very, um, it's going to make me feel down in the dumps, as a nicer way to say depression is. 
So that's the same feeling our psalmist has here. There may be many things at play here. It, obviously, he's not in Jerusalem, so there might be some physical stress going on there. There's people taunting him. There's lots of causes here for his oppression, but one of the causes clearly is spiritual in the sense that he has no felt presence of God. So look at verse 2, for example. He says, at the second half of verse 2, he says, When shall I come and appear before God? He's talking about the temple. When shall I come and appear before him in the temple? I look at verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and leave them in possession to the house of God. He's remembering when he used to get to go to the house of God. Verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? He feels neglected by God. I I think that he understands because verse 8 makes it clear that he knows God hasn't abandoned him, but he's talking about a felt nearness and presence. Mainly because he's out of the temple. I think that God permits these seasons for us because it's normal that you guys will have those dry seasons. The mountains, like everything's going so easy for me right now. And then those moments where like, where is God? It's, I don't really feel this whole thing going on. That's normal. C.S. Lewis, Lewis calls it the law of unindation. It's the cycle of dry and doing well. And God permits those dry seasons in order to teach us to fight for hope and joy in him. God did not make us robots to just be programmed to obey him. All right, yeah, we obey no matter what we're feeling. Obedience is a choice that we have to choose and sometimes fight to do. And nothing honors God more than when a saint who does not feel at all it just in the dumps, chooses to stand up and fight even against himself and his feelings to worship God. And this is what the psalmist is trying to do. So, what then is the cure for depression? How are we going to handle it when it comes? Well, because depression is a lack of joy resulting from a lack of hope, What you need is hope. You gain hope, you gain joy, depression defeated. That's what the psalmist learns here. He decides to battle depression by fighting for hope. Look at verse 5. He sums it all up here. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? In other words, why are you depressed, O my soul? Answer. Hope in God, that's what I need to do, soul, hoping God and all will be well. So, I hope you guys know that hope in God in the Bible does not refer to wishful thinking. It has actually a confident expectation. So to hope in God means that you are placing all of your confidence and all of your expectation in who he is And his goodness, even in the face of trouble and depression. So this psalmist knows in verse 4 that God is my exceeding joy. I'm sorry, it's 43 verse 4. God is my exceeding joy. 
So I'm placing my hope in God that my joy is there. My confidence and expectation is coming from that. So how do we fight for hope in God? I'm going to have to blaze through these here. Number one, I'm going to give you guys four reasons that I find the psalmist practicing. How do you fight for hope in God? Number one, affirm God's covenantal love to yourself. Affirm his covenantal love. Look at verse eight. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. You see what he's writing? He's writing things like they're saying, where's my God? And he's saying himself in verse nine, why have you forsaken? Why have you forgotten me? But what he does is he affirms his covenantal love. By day, the Lord commands a steadfast love. Steadfast love in the Hebrew is the word chesed. And chesed is the word that's always used of God's covenantal love. The love when he talks about his covenant with his people. So this is love that does not go back. It does not contract. It's covenantal. So affirm God's covenantal love. Romans 5.5 says this. Hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. So affirm God's covenantal love. Fight for hope. Number two. Recall past experiences of God's past faithfulness. Verse 4. This is what he's doing. He's recalling his past experiences and God's past faithfulness. These things I remember past as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts of songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He's, he's recalling those better times. In verse 6, it says, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. That's what Jeremiah did when he was, when he was depressed. You guys ever read Lamentations? Such a depressing book. It's all about the slaughter of Jews when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. And Jeremiah says this, 3 verse 19. He's saying, remember God, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. You hear that language of depression? My soul is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind. He's remembering. And therefore I have hope. This is what he's calling to mind. The steadfast love, chesed love, of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is their faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So recalling past experiences in his faithfulness is a way to fight for hope. So today, we fortunately are blessed with the scriptures. Romans 15.4 says this, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope through the encouragement of the scriptures. So that's how you're going to remember past experiences through the scriptures. So, also, don't oversight the fact that verse 4 talks about congregational singing. Don't ever underestimate what God does here when we get together and sing and how it can lift your soul from discouragement. All right, how to fight for hope. Number three, preach the gospel to yourself. 
preach the gospel to yourself. Verse 5. Notice what the psalmist does there. He's preaching to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Come on, you can do this. Get off the ground. (laughs) He's talking to himself. He's preaching to himself. This is exactly what Martin Lloyd-Jones said that Christians ought to do in his book called Spiritual Depression. He says this. I say that we must talk to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk to us. (laughs) Do you realize what this means? I suggest that the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this. That we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? No. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? For example, take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them. But they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday and etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment. Now he's talking about our psalm here. This man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Says, why are you cast down O my soul? He asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. So what do you speak to yourself? Preach the gospel to yourself. I suppose the psalmist would have used verses such as had he had them. Romans 5, verse 2 through 8. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Because while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one, who, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us. And that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. There's one way to re-encourage your hope. Or Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us, soul? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not with him also give us all things? Soul, listen. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who is raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Oh, my soul, God has not forgotten. His love is there singing over you every day. So preach to yourself. And finally, fight for joy by thirsting for God. Now, that does seem like a hard thing because, like, okay, I just don't feel like, I just feel like vegging. I just feel like blah. That's me when I'm depressed. I don't feel like reading my Bible or thirsting for God. And that's the frankness of, of depression. But thirsting for God is utmost important in depression because depression brings this lack of feeling 
And when we're there, we want desperately to feel something. So I have found, and I have been um, supported by other great minds like C.S. Lewis, that in the midst of depression, we are most prone to tweak the pleasures of God for sinful ends. Because we just want to feel. So for young men, I have found that you must be extra careful against the temptations of pornography and depression. For some women, you need to guard against overeating in the midst of depression. And for general humanity, we need to guard against alcoholism in the midst of depression. It seems that in the times of depression, we become most susceptible to perverted pleasures. And that is what C.S. Lewis writes in the Screw Tape Letters. He says, The attack of Satan has a much better chance of success when the man's whole inner world is drab, cold, and empty. So later in that same chapter, the screw tape letters, if you don't know, there are two demons writing to each other about how to trip up this little Christian guy. This is what one demon says to the other. This is how you're going to trip him up. Make him misuse God's pleasures. This is how he tells him to do it. God made the pleasures. All our demonic, of the demons, all our research thus far has not enabled us to produce even one pleasure. All we can do is encourage the humans to take pleasures which God has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. So at times uh, misuse them is what he's saying there. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural and least reminiscent of its maker and least pleasurable. So he's saying the more you get someone to enjoy pleasures away from God, you begin to get them to enjoy pleasures apart from God, it's going to be least pleasurable and the least like the maker who made them. And then he concludes, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. So in depression, you must guard against that. The craving for pleasures, they're actually just going to make you thirstier. So that's why the psalmist in verse 1 and 2 recognizes, verse 2 says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So... Be careful for your fleshly splurgings in depression and rather fight for hope and thirst for God because God is, like 30, 43 verse 4 says, He is our true and exceeding joy. And that is going to be the answer when you lose hope and joy is to regain it by hoping in God and finding your joy in Him. So Father, we ask that you would Strengthen your saints here, your downcast, to fight, to stand up and thirst for you and to fight for hope. God, you've given us every reason to hope in you. So turn our faith towards you again. And Lord, for those of us who are doing well, we pray that you will be utmost exalted in our joy in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.